I've had a really good job of uh, picking very cheerful uh, scripture readings to lead into our sermons the last couple times I've preached, uh, and this clearly keeps with that, being torn into pieces and houses turned into rubble. Uh, it's been a little weird. I haven't preached the last couple of weeks, and I wasn't really sure what to do with myself. Um, it's strange on Sunday morning for a preacher to just be in the auditorium with everybody, uh, and so uh, forgive me if I, if I uh, am a little awkward in approaching preaching this morning. I'm, I'm out of practice by two weeks, and so um, I told us at the beginning of this series that one of the things that we would be doing a lot of is spending time in the New Testament, specifically because so much of our theology of prayer is drawn from the life of Jesus. Kyle pointed out that uh, you know, in the life of Christ, there are these, these constant and regular times that we see Jesus going to pray. Uh, Jared King had pointed out a couple of weeks ago that Jesus made it a habit of praying, and he shared from the book of Acts this idea that the early church, before they would do anything, would pray to God for guidance. Um, it's, it's easy for us to see those patterns in the New Testament, things that we would want to emulate for ourselves from the life of Jesus to the life of the early church. But sometimes uh, I think it's good for us to go back and see that prayer is not exclusively the territory of the New Testament. God's people have always prayed. And we don't have to look too far. You know, we, we look in the book of Genesis and we find that almost immediately out of the garden, people begin turning to God. Uh, some say to, to cry out against the name of the Lord, you know, asking him questions and maybe a little angry, or crying out to the name of the Lord. In either case, there's a, an appeal made to God for clarity a desire to have him interact in some way, a desire for him to interact with us or to interact with the situation that we find ourselves in. But when we go to the Old Testament, the thing that I think we see most clearly as a, a sign of what prayer is supposed to look like is the life of Daniel. And, uh, you know, I think when we're little kids, we probably all heard the stories of, uh, of Daniel and the lion's den, right? I, when I was really little, I remember thinking, like, that was his last name, Daniel and the lion's den, right? Uh, because that was the only way we ever referred to Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den. And so that kind of fell into my head, that's gotta be the guy's last name, what a cool last name, and the lion's den. We also know the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These, these gentlemen who are carried off from Jerusalem to become a part of the household of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the individuals who would be advisors to him. And if you read chapter one of the book of Daniel, you see that there's, there's this uh, drawing out of the finest of Israel to become kind of important and significant individuals in the household of the king of Babylon. It's, it's a pretty significant thing that we end up seeing here. Now, if you read between the lines, you find out that it may not, especially for a, a young Jewish man, be such a great honor to be made an official in the household of Nebuchadnezzar. Because the men that served in these positions were made eunuchs. It was a, a detestable thing to most of Israel to be subjected to something along these lines. In fact, if you go back and you look at the book of Deuteronomy, where it discusses those who can participate in temple worship, eunuchs were not allowed they had a place outside of the walls of the temple to approach God. 
There's some tension there that we oftentimes experience where we know that in the New Testament, one of the things we see is that Jesus is constantly uh, you know, healing those who have afflictions of some kind. He's working to bring them uh, restoration and fullness, and he doesn't keep those who are harmed or experiencing disease at a distance because you can't heal those that you're never interacting with. The lepers... The men with crippled legs, those who are blind, Jesus draws near to himself. In, in fact, many of them seek him out, and he doesn't turn them away. But in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that those with certain defects were not allowed to come and worship in the temple. And being a eunuch was counted among those things. And so these, these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are advisors within the household of Nebuchadnezzar, which means they were almost certainly made eunuchs by their captors. There's an implication as well that Daniel himself might have encountered this situation. As you read through the text, the one that they report to is the chief eunuch of the household of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a bad situation to find yourself in. It's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. But they'd been told before they ever arrived there that the situation which they were going to face was going to be something that God intended for them. And I want to look at the book of Jeremiah for just a moment here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah and my clicker. Oh, it helps if I turn it on, right? I told you I'm out of practice this morning. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Jeremiah is telling the Israelite people that they are going to go into captivity. And he's explaining to them why it is that they're going into captivity. He is tremendously mournful about this situation. He has pleaded that it might not be the case. He has wept over the people of Israel and over their sin, but also over what it is God will do to correct their sin. And in the midst of all of this, he tells them, Seek the welfare of the city where I, he's speaking the words of God here, have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I want you to imagine for just a moment here that you are the holy people of God. Now, you shouldn't have to imagine too hard, because if you are a part of the body of Christ, you are a member of the holy people of God. You've been given a land. You've more or less, over the years, been allowed to be a unified kingdom, self-governing. You've had some issues where your kings have kind of divided the land, uh, split the baby, kind of like Solomon would suggest to do. Um, they, They have had the opportunity to live the laws that their God has given them. They've had the opportunity to fail at living out those laws, but they've done it as an independent nation. There have been moments where, as a group of people, uh, they've suffered at the hands of the Canaanites. They've, you know, maybe been given over to uh, a minor captivity uh, during the time of the judges. But for the most part, they have been an independent nation. And God has now said, because of your sin, because you have not loved mercy, because you have not kept my commands, because you have neglected the poor, because you have, whatever the case might be, failed to live up to be my people, 
I am sending you into captivity. And when you get there, I want you to pray for your captors. Pray for the people who have essentially taken you hostage. I'm going to send you into a city, a town, a land that is not your own, and it is there that I want you to pray for the welfare of that city, not for the welfare of Jerusalem. He doesn't instruct them, pray that you might be taken out of captivity, pray that your captivity might come to an early end, pray that God would restore you to the land. He doesn't tell them those things. Now, he doesn't prohibit them from praying for those things, but he makes it very clear that for the time in which they reside in this land, they are to pray for its well-being. He also instructs them, you know, build houses, get married, have children, plant vineyards. Now, for anyone who knows anything about planting a vineyard, it's not like it's going to produce the next year. So he's telling them, get comfortable in the place I'm sending you because you're going to be there a while. And praying for the well-being of that town, that city, that nation is praying for your own welfare. That can be a really difficult thing for us to imagine sometimes because we don't really like the idea of praying for captors, right? For the people that take us hostage. We don't like the idea of praying for those who have put us in a bad position. And I think a lot of times Christians in our, our modern world have that sort of feeling in a lot of ways with our, our governments, municipal, federal, state, you know, all of these, these governments that are around us. Oftentimes we look at them and we say, you know, they really don't let us live the way that we want to live. How in the world am I supposed to pray for the well-being of my city if they don't even want to live morally and righteously? How do I pray for people who live so contrary to the will of God. And yet that's exactly what God tells the Israelite people to do before they go into Babylon. Now I want to make it clear to you. Stop and think for just a moment about all the good things the Bible has to say about the city of Babylon. You're not even going to need one note card for this, okay? The Bible doesn't have good things to say about Babylon. Babylon is the first set of now, Don and I have talked about this. You don't have to find a bad guy in every scripture, okay? This is really important. Not every story is about the good guys and the bad guys. But if you're going to look at a bad guy in the, the history of scripture, the first one of the human race in many ways, besides Cain, but a group of people are the Babelites, the Babylonians. The city of Babel, the Tower of Babel, this is a beginning point in Scripture that will carry through all the way to the book of Revelation in which God is constantly saying, it's people like this who stand against me. People who want to make a name for themselves. People who want to make themselves great. People who want to defy God and say, you know what, we are just like him. We're going to make a great name for ourselves and we'll kind of shake our fist at the sky. Bible doesn't have a lot of good to say about Babylon, but you know what God tells the people of Israel to do? Pray for your Babylonian neighbors. Pray for the city of Babylon when you're captive there. And that's the context that Daniel begins with. If you read chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Daniel, you are reading the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 
in regards to where the Israelite people will find themselves. Carried off, made eunuchs in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and forced to assimilate into a culture that is in so many ways the absolute antithesis of what God intends for his people. A nation in which the king erects a statue of himself and says, worship this. A nation in which they eat detestable things, which, you know, go back and read again the book of Deuteronomy or read the book of Leviticus and see just how important dietary law was to the Israelite people and read chapter 1 and 2 of, of, of Daniel again and tell me that it doesn't begin by saying, look, we found ourselves in a position where we just did not agree with these people on anything, right on down to the things that we ate. Daniel actually encourages the king, hey, just let us eat our own diet for a few weeks and, and see whether or not it's not better for us. And they do, and they're healthy and glowing, and you know, people have taken that wildly out of context, and there's the Daniel diet, which you know, I'm not saying you need to go eat the Daniel diet, but by obeying God, by abstaining from the things that they're supposed to abstain from, by publicly doing it, by encountering the king and saying, you know what, we're going to live a little bit differently while we're among you, they succeed. But we have this encounter here where Nebuchadnezzar is having nightmares, dreams, disturbing visions. It's really reminiscent of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. In fact, I think these two chapters here are in many ways to remind us that what Joseph did in the land of Egypt is really what we're all called to do in the nations we find ourselves in, to seek their well-being, to seek the best for them, potentially with the opportunity to point them to God. And so Nebuchadnezzar's having these nightmares, and he calls all of his advisors to him, and he says, all right, if you want to live, you're going to tell me what my dream was and what it means. And if you can't do that, congratulations. I have a new home for you outside the city gates, and it'll have a nice carved headstone. That will be the place that you will find yourself residing from here on out. And they're all greatly disturbed because they absolutely cannot possibly figure out what this dream is because they're a bunch of charlatans, right? Like, they don't actually have the wisdom that's required. But Daniel recognizes God and God alone can provide the interpretation of dreams, which also sounds an awful lot like Joseph in the book of Genesis. And so he encourages his group of buddies who have been carried off and made eunuchs pray for God to give us the wisdom that we need. So we have this, this passage here, Daniel chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. Daniel asked his friends to pray to the God of heaven that God would be kind to them and help them understand this secret. Then Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the other wise men of Babylon. During the night, God explained the secret to Daniel in a vision then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Now keep in mind, there, there is definitely an aspect here where Daniel is praying for self-preservation reasons, right? Like he doesn't want to be killed along with all the other wise men of Babylon. But he's also praying that he might be able to offer relief to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Daniel could very well pray, hey, God, just get me out of this situation. Spirit me away. Take me away from this whole problem, this whole situation that I find myself in. Get me out of trouble, God. Carry me out of the lion's den. Carry me out of the fiery furnace, right? Those are signs that we're going to see later on. And you know what? In all of these cases, every time that Daniel faces a situation that's caused to him by his oppressors, he doesn't pray to be carried away from it. But for God to provide a clear path through it. Pray that God would be kind to us. Help us understand this secret. Not, hey God, you know what? This Nebuchadnezzar fellow is a really big pain in our hind end. Could you just let him have like an aneurysm and die and then we'd be done with him? I want to be clear, there, there are times in the, in the Old Testament, if you read through the book of Psalms, where imprecatory prayer, a prayer that your enemy would suffer and face defeat, is widely open to us. Where it's made absolutely clear that it is in fact a mode of prayer that the, the heroes of our faith participated in. There is no doubt about it that there are times in which God would probably say, hey, you're justified to be angry, and maybe even to pray for, for some misery to befall the people who are persecuting and oppressing you. But they're not in a lot of the narratives of Scripture. In fact, most of the time, when a group of people in the Old Testament find themselves oppressed, find themselves carried off to be surrounded by people who are not the people of God who behave very differently from them. God lets them stay there until a lesson has been learned. And no amount of prayer is going to alleviate them from the situation. God doesn't instruct his people, pray against your enemies so that I might end your captivity early. Tells them, pray for the city you find yourself in. I think there are times that we as Christians today pray against the city that we find ourselves in. We call down heavenly fire on our persecutors, whoever those might be. We pray against the Nebuchadnezzars in our life. We ask God to liberate us from our oppressed state. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but I think that the evidence we see in Scripture is that God is continually praying or asking for people to pray for those, these are the words of Jesus, who persecute them. Are you praying for our town, for our mayor? Are you praying for our city council? Are you praying for our school board? Are you praying for those that are in positions of influence in our society, or are you praying against them? I'm going to tell you this. I think you can pray against someone winning an election. I think that's all right. If you don't want someone to be the, the president of the United States or the, the, 
uh, head honcho at your you know, uh, company picnic, and you, uh, he's running for the position of company picnic coordinator, and you're like, that guy's going to have a terrible party. I've been to his house four times, and every time I have, you know, go over, he wants to play the same stupid game. I don't want to have him coordinate our company picnic. Pray against him, becoming the president of the company picnic. Pray against him, becoming the president of the United States. Pray against whatever it is that he's doing. But the moment that he's in power, the moment that this individual has a position of authority, are you praying for them? Are you praying that God would provide wisdom? That God would provide relief for them in whatever distress it is that they're facing? Because the interesting thing is, with Nebuchadnezzar, the entire book of Daniel kind of works through this this idea that Nebuchadnezzar's suffering is oftentimes alleviated by Daniel and by these three other men in their behavior of righteousness that his suffering is a sign from God and that the relief that's provided to them by these indi- by, to him by these individuals is evidence of the God of heaven. And these are not men that spend a lot of time actively pushing against this king. In fact, if they did, if they actively campaigned against him, the position of influence that God had given to them might be taken away altogether. Now that doesn't mean that they ever submit themselves to things that are morally reprehensible. They never bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They don't participate in the foods that he offers to them that they're not supposed to participate in. They continue to pray to their God on a regular and continual basis without fail. But they seek the well-being of Babylon while they're there. They're faithful to God. They obey what the prophet told them to do. Do we do the same? I've said before, Christians sometimes have a a little bit of an identity crisis, a little bit of a struggle within ourselves. We want to be American Christians and not Christians who live in America. The Israelites were pretty clear on their identity. They were not Babylonians. At no point were they Babylonians. Not a single person could convince Daniel that he was a Babylonian. There was no convincing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they were Babylonians. They were Jews. They were of Israel. Their identity was tied exclusively to the relationship that they had with God through their forefathers and through their participation in what it is that God called them to. They dwelled in Babylon, but they were not Babylonians. They benefited sometimes from living in Babylon. There's a lot of protection that comes from living in the city that is the strongest in the world. But they never confused their identity because of where they lived. They knew that they were first the people of God who happened to live in Babylon. And as Christians, I think that we need to be really clear on what our identity is. We are not Americans first. 
We are blessed in many ways to live in America. There are a lot of advantages that we have as a result of being citizens of the United States of America. There are things that we should extol and laud and say, hey, this is wonderful. Look at all the freedoms we have. I am so glad that God has blessed me to live in a place where I can openly practice my religion. But we are first and foremost Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the King that sits on the throne that will never fail. And as the people of God, we are not to confuse the land that we live in with our home. We're to pray for its well-being. We are to seek its welfare. We're not to participate in the sinful practices of the land that we live in, but we are absolutely called to seek its well-being. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Later on, in the book of Daniel... There's another little instance of prayer here. Daniel is praying to God. He he has come to the conclusion, he understands how long the Israelite people are to remain in captivity. He's studied it out. He's a man who reads, right? He, He knows how long God is going to place them in captivity. He knows how long it will be till they're carried back, and he's calculated it down to a specific point, and he prays to God, and what he prays for, interestingly, is this. He, he prays specifically for the sin of the people of Israel and his own sin. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel, depending on your translation, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel is having this, this vision as he's praying for the sins of his brothers and sisters, right? Daniel is concerned about those who are Israel maintaining their identity as Israel, about himself maintaining his identity as an Israelite, about continuing to live in the way that God has called them to live, because he recognizes, in many ways, the captivity that they face as a result of their previous sin. He says, God, I don't want to be that person. I don't want my brothers and sisters who are Israelites to be those people. In fact, I think maybe the thing that compels him so deeply, his, his moral compass, the thing that is directing him so well, is to be surrounded by people who don't necessarily believe what he believes, who don't behave in the moral ways which he behaves, which becomes very compelling evidence that for those who follow the will of God, life is a little bit better, maybe a lot better. And so he calls to God to forgive them He calls to God confessing his sins so that he might be reformed and so the people might be reformed. This morning, I want to be clear about what it means to pray for our town. 
this group right here in this room this morning with us, we are, we are a community. We are a household. We are the people of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to pray for one another. We must. It is absolutely essential. We are a household in a town surrounded by people. We should be praying for one another. Every person in this room should be praying for the other people in this room. Sean Jones last week was saying that he picks up the directory and he prays through it for each and every one of you at some point in time or another. Usually on Sunday morning, everybody gets a prayer from Sean. I think that's a pretty commendable sort of thing. I want to tell you, you should pray for the people in your household. I think we do a pretty good job of that, but I think where we fall short as the Newburgh Church of Christ, and probably as Christians in general, is in praying for the people outside of our own household. We do a lot of praying against and not a lot of praying for. And I want to encourage you this morning Boots on the ground here, right? Get, get ready to go and, and take some marching orders here. Do what it is that God has called us to do. Ask yourself, who are the people that I most dislike in the leadership roles in my city, in my county, in my state, in my country? And how do I pray for God to do something for them that the nation I find myself dwelling in might find its welfare so that I might find my welfare. When we pray for those that are in charge of our city, our town, we are praying for the well-being of our household. You can't possibly not benefit from the well-being of the place you find yourself. I want to encourage you this week to ask yourself some hard questions about how often you pray for the people in positions of power that you disagree with. None of us, as far as I know, have been made eunuchs by those who are in power over us. So that's a pretty good starting point to be on better footing with them than Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are, right? Very few of us are asked to consume things that we're not really wanting to consume, but there are things about our city, our state, our country that we find morally reprehensible and we're still called to pray for its well-being. Who are you going to pray for this week instead of praying against them? I want to ask you that question. I want you to dwell on it. I want you to think about it and then I want you to do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are citizens first and foremost of your kingdom. And we want in all things to be your people. We don't want to be led astray by the city that we dwell in. We don't want to be led astray by the nation that we dwell in. We don't want the leaders that are placed over us in positions of power and authority to lead us into uh, sinful practices, but Father, we want very much to honor your desire for us to pray for those who persecute us and to love our enemies.
So Father, make us prayers of good for the people who are in positions of power. Make us prayers of the well-being of our city. Help us to be very clear on the good that you intend for those that are all around us and how when we pray for their well-being, our well-being is taken care of. Help us to be like Daniel. Help us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people who are in the midst of captivity, but who live courageously as your people, loving and caring for those who are our captors, loving and caring for those who live defiantly against you, loving and caring for those who disagree with us on a great many things. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have need of the church, if there are things that you need prayer for, if there are people you want us to pray for, if there are ways in which you feel that you, uh, you just are missing something, we want to pray for you this morning. We want to walk alongside you. We want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ because Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who leaves and finds himself in enemy territory and loves well everyone that he encounters. Looks different from person to person, but if you want to walk with Jesus and love well everyone you encounter, I'd encourage you to to pursue that this morning. We believe that that's done through the waters of baptism. Participation in his death, burial, and resurrection allows us then to take on his image and become more like him. And if that's something that you're interested in this morning, if you want to be more like Christ, I'd be happy to visit with you. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. I'd be happy to pray with you. Our elders are here this morning, and we have some ladies here as well who would be happy to pray with you if that's what you'd prefer. Let's stand and sing.